Coming up on Studios America, Colin Hoback tells me who exactly Q is of the QAnon phenomenon, if it's not Colin himself. <laughs> I'll ask the tough question. Andrew Cuomo resurfaces in public just to lie a bunch more. Classic Andrew. And the CDC has let us know if we are able to go outside without masks ever again. You're not going to like the answer, as we do ridiculous restrictions. Stu does America. Well, today we had a new announcement from the CDC giving us guidance about what percentage of our freedom we're allowed to obtain. And if you're like me, you've been assessing your own risk and don't really need their red and yellow and green charts made for idiots to figure out your risk profile. But before we get into all of this, we need to acknowledge how terrible the past year has been. There are plenty of ways to do so, but let's let the USDA tell the story. When looking at different types of food and how their intake has changed over the past year, you can see a chart here. Uh, all of them are, are a little up or a little down in consumption levels, except one. The category all the way to the right of the screen, alcohol. <laughs> way, way up. We've been drinking like it's freshman year in college and trying to desperately erase the memory of 2020. Totally unrelated, but my 250th episode Power Hour is now available on YouTube for you to consume in dangerous amounts. Just saying. So what does the CDC say is okay? What has changed with these incredibly effective vaccines? Well, here's a look at all of their recommendations together, but let's go through them one by one. First of all, can you walk, run, or bike outdoors with members of your household? Well, congratulations. Everyone without a vaccine and without a mask is able to do that. The reason I show you that one even is because this is one of the only things the CDC will let you do. And it includes exercise, so you don't even want to do it. How about attending a small outdoor gathering with fully vaccinated family and friends? Hmm, well... So you're, let's say you're in a small crowd, not a medium one, not a large one, but a small one, and you oddly know everyone else's vaccine status, and they're all vaccinated. Well, congratulations, you can go hang out with them outside. I mean, don't be too generous with our freedom, CDC. How about attending a small outdoor gathering with fully vaccinated and unvaccinated people? Now, if there are other, you know, unvaccinated around, you can still go to the small outdoor gathering, but you need to wear a mask. I know people who are obsessed with the virus, and even they aren't wearing a mask in these situations. How about dining in an outdoor restaurant with friends from multiple households? Now, a mask is not enough for you to go to an outdoor restaurant, but I guess it's okay for those who are vaccinated. This is the one single thing that the CDC seems to say you can actually do with a vaccine that people without a vaccine and no mask uh, can't do. You know, the unvaccinated normies, they're not allowed to do that. Eat outdoors at a restaurant. I mean, it really is, it's insanity. Attend a crowded outdoor event, like a live performance, parade, or sports event. The CDC says it's okay to go to an outdoor concert if you have a vaccine and a mask on, but no vaccine, no overpriced beer or mediocre music for you. We need to stop and, and look for a second here at how crazy all of this is. There are some studies that show an advantage to masks indoors in certain certain, uh, certain, certain uh, situations, but there is nothing. I mean, like legit zilch that shows that wearing a mask outdoors is necessary. 
This is from David Leonhard from the New York Times. Does it make sense to wear a mask outdoors most of the time? Short answer, no. The science doesn't support it. How rare are we talking about? We're talking about masks outside. To understand just how low the risk of outdoor transmission is, researchers in Italy used mathematical models to calculate the amount of time it would take for a person to become infected outdoors in Milan. They imagined a grim scenario in which 10% of the population was infected with the coronavirus. Their calculations showed that if a person avoided crowds, it would take on average 31.5 days of continuous outdoor exposure to inhale a dose of a virus sufficient to transmit infection. I mean, a 31 day concert. That sounds horrific. I mean, even Woodstock only lasted three days. So how often has this actually happened worldwide? Scientists have not documented any instances of outdoor transmission unless people were in close conversation. None, not a single one globally. And they're telling us that vaccinated people need to wear masks outdoors. This is crazy. How about indoors? Visit a barber or hair salon. You can't do this without a vaccine, even if you wear your mask. Vaccinated people still need to wear masks, unless, of course, you're Nancy Pelosi, then go mask free. By the way, have I told you lately that Nancy Pelosi sucks? Pen dot com nancy pelosi sucks pen.com they're real and they're spectacular go to an uncrowded indoor shopping center or museum i'm sorry is there another kind of museum that is not i mean in this category they're all uncrowded as far as i've ever known how about riding public transport with limited occupancy you should stay away from public transport this i will actually agree with um, but mostly for reasons completely disconnected to COVID. It's generally speaking about the smell. So stay away from that. Attend a small indoor gathering of fully vaccinated and unvaccinated people from multiple households. This is the last one that is only strongly cautioned against for those who are unvaccinated. But people who are masked and vaccinated can happily try to eat and drink through their masks indoors. The next bunch is the least safe, most horrific actions you can possibly take. But hey, if you wear a mask and you have a vaccine, they're now okay. Celebrate everyone. You can go to an indoor movie theater. Now look, I did this in May, 2020. The video of it exists on my YouTube page. Pat and I risked our lives for you. And I hope there was a hashtag going around, release the Pat Gray cut. I don't know how that's going, but we'll have to look into it. Attend a full capacity worship service. Guess what, everybody? You can now go to church. Yay, First Amendment. I mean, you still have to wear a mask, obviously. And if you get a vaccine, you can, of course, also sing in an indoor chorus. Look, it's hard enough to get people to go to church and not just mouth the words without COVID. Though I will say the overlooked benefit of the mask is that no one can tell if you're not singing. Eat at an indoor restaurant or bar. I mean... Come on, you're still wearing a mask after vaccination at restaurants, at least from the door to your table where you immediately then take it off. This is because COVID is actually only existing at head level when you're standing up. It can't come down to table level. It's impossible or something. That's science, by the way. Um, also, I should probably mention that I did manage to get COVID at an indoor restaurant. So I can assure you it is possible. And I'm probably not the right person to be bitching about these rules. How about participating in an indoor high-intensity exercise class? Mm. 
They are saying you can only go to the gym with a vaccine and a mask. A high intensity workout with a mask on is the worst thing that has ever been thought of. The second worst thing is a high intensity workout without a mask. But that's just me. Congrats, CDC. You actually made me want to exercise less. Who thought it was possible? Here's how the presentation from our illustrious CDC director ended up. I hope this message is encouraging for you. Huh? It shows just how powerful these vaccines are in our efforts to end this pandemic huh? and why we are asking everyone to roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated. The science is clear. The COVID-19 vaccines have been through many transparent, rigorous processes that continue to prove they are safe and effective. If you haven't already, please, get vaccinated. And you know, part of that is true. There have been a lot of trials and everything that have shown they're safe and effective. But if they're that powerful, why are you restricting us like this still after we have them? It doesn't make any sense. And how can you be encouraged by that presentation? I certainly wasn't. It was depressing. And it makes people not want to go get the vaccine because they look at this chart and they say, wait, there's like one extra thing I can do that I'm probably already doing. What's the point? So what does the science actually say about all of this? There are two important questions to ask. What is the risk of getting COVID after you have a vaccine? Well, we all know it's possible, right? The vaccines show something like a 90% efficacy rate. So sure, it's possible. But how likely is it? And how likely is it to give you real problems? Here you go. What is the chance of getting COVID after getting vaccinated in the U.S.? 0.008%. That's among 66 million fully vaccinated people. If you're talking about getting hospitalized, it's 0.00056%. That's about 7% of those who were infected. And dying from COVID after vaccination, 0.00001%. Seven deaths in 66 million vaccinated. That means... Of 66 million people fully vaccinated, 99.9924% did not get COVID. 99.99944% didn't get hospitalized from COVID. And I swear this is a real number. 99.99999% have not died of COVID. I will say this once again because I've said it before. These vaccines are freaking miracles, miracles. But what about the other question? We know it's near impossible to get, but can you spread it to others somehow? Three initial studies have come out regarding your ability to spread COVID if you've been vaccinated. Quote, one found that people vaccinated with one dose, only one dose of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. By the way, has anyone had a, a rougher go of this than BioNTech? I mean, they, they probably did all the work and Pfizer just marketed it and everyone calls it the Pfizer vaccine. Sucks for them. Anyway, the one dose of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine had viral loads up to 20 times lower than viral loads in unvaccinated infected people. Two others from the Mayo Clinic and the UK included more than 85,000 routinely tested healthcare workers who were fully vaccinated with the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. The vaccine reduced infection by 85 to 89 percent. All this evidence underscores all three vaccines ability to prevent infection in the majority of those vaccinated. So it's almost impossible to get. 
and it's almost impossible to spread. I'm not an epidemiologist, but like everyone else in America, I play one on TV. And on this, I have the science firmly in my corner. There is absolutely no reason for anyone to stop doing anything once they've been vaccinated. Full stop, period, end of story. The same goes for us COVID-19 survivors like myself. Now, scientists seem to think that if you have it naturally, if you got COVID naturally, uh, the immunity may last for a shorter time and one shot of a vaccine will likely help, especially if you had minor or no symptoms like I did, even though I still am a COVID-19 survivor. Regardless, there's no need to stop anyone from doing anything in these scenarios. The risk is so tiny. And even if you somehow do get it, you're extremely likely to have a very minor case. And even if you do spread it, you are very likely to pass a very mild case. The correct messaging is not, hey, get a vaccine and maybe you can get your hair cut with a mask. The correct messaging should be, get a vaccine and you never have to hear from the government about it ever again. Go back to the time where you didn't even know who Anthony Fauci was. It's time to party like it's 2019. So if you're looking to buy or sell a home, you know, selling a home right now, there are some areas where it's a little bit difficult. You've got still the restrictions. How do you even do all that stuff? I can understand how that can be challenging. I will say the market is is really looking good right now. If you're selling a home, Uh, really, really good. Almost scary good. Almost scary good. You need a real estate agent who knows how to take advantage of that situation. If you need the house painted uh, as you're selling your house, replace the stairs, need a roof repair. You need someone who knows who the right people to do that are at the right price. It's hard to do all of this on your own. And that's why a real estate agent can be more than a person that just fills out paperwork, right? They can be the person who knows the market and knows how to get your house in the right position to sell. Uh, Real estate agents I trust is Glenn's company. Uh, You can be rest assured that you're going to be in the hands of the most capable people in the industry who will see your transaction through to the very end. The name says it all, realestateagentsitrust.com. Do you want a real estate agent that you can trust? Then go to realestateagentsitrust.com. Wherever you are in America, realestateagentsitrust.com. I'm so happy to welcome to the program Colin Hoback. He's the director and producer of the new hit HBO docuseries Q Into the Storm, which is available to stream in its entirety right now. Here's a quick look at the documentary. Anybody, I'll show them Q proofs and say, look, talk me out of it. Have, Have you, you heard, heard of the Q? The what? QAnon? What had started in an online forum had crawled out from behind the screen to the seat of power, all with the help of a single letter. And we're going to win big. You just watch. In 2018, I set out to chart Q's origins. I wrote the first part of HN while I was coming off of psychedelic mushrooms. You can really find yourself falling down a hole trying to find out who Q is. I'm pretty sure Q is a spin-off from Star Trek. Q is whatever you want it to be. Sometimes they'll even think it's me. I have a question. You're going through a possible list of who Q might be. That's right. <laughs> You're on the list. Well, let's continue then. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing ride. Colin, thanks so much for coming on the program. <laughs> 
Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, it's just really freaking good and interesting. So congratulations. I know this was a long time in the making. Really appreciate that. Yeah. No, it was. It really is. Let me. Let me. I want to start with the your approach on this because I think there's a version sure. of of this documentary which is kind of works backwards from January sixth and is basically a, a, a political attack on Trump and the administration. That is absolutely not what you did here. I mean, this is a totally different approach than what, what a lot of people would expect from, from HBO or, 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 or something like that. Why did you approach it this way? Well, it was really important to me to come at this from a position of neutrality. Uh, and I wanted to, I guess, take, and I told everybody who I was filming with in this project that I was trying to create a historical document, uh, get a holistic view and I wanted to really capture all sides of the story. Uh, so everybody I was filming with, uh, whether they were fervent Q believers or people who were fighting against Q, knew this. And I tried to be upfront with everybody. Yeah, it, it, it comes through, I think, really, because you, you treat the people in the story like real people trying to figure this out and, and trying to really kind of figure out who Q is, which is it's really an amazing ride for people who don't know. Because uh, there's a lot of people in the audience who aren't familiar really with the backstory of Q at all. Can you can you walk people through the basics? Sure. So the belief is that there was this, you know, government insider going by the moniker Q who was supposedly dropping um, like secret intel, uh, usually in the form of questions or cryptic kind of codes uh, on this uh, image board site called 8chan. Uh, initially started on 4chan, but quickly moved over to 8chan. Uh, and so um, a lot of people came to believe that whoever this person was who was writing all of this stuff anonymously was secretly working with Donald Trump and members of the military as part of this uh, plan to take down kind of a, a global cabal of, of evildoers or baby eaters. Or there, There's a wide range of theories that formed uh, out of out of uh, this this narrative. Uh, so um, really, there was there was no theory that was sort of too wild to kind of be folded into into Q. And I think that's part of what made it so attractive to people as well, was that there was this interactive game quality to it. You know, Q would ask these questions that were largely grounded in the, the culture of 8chan. Um, and people could then kind of try to decipher their meaning and figure out, uh, you know, what what it meant. Kind of collect things they found on the internet, and it became this almost interactive story uh, that over time people came to believe. Yeah, it, it's, you do a really good job in the documentary explaining all of these different arms because it's not really a political story. It's it's more of a journey in sort of the dark corners of the internet. And a lot of it is really unfamiliar. I mean, I've never been on 4chan. I've never been on 8chan before. Um, can you kind of explain to people, like, when you said it goes from 4chan to 8chan, what does that mean? How did it happen? What are these sites like? Sure. So websites like 4chan um, and 8chan have been around for decades. So they're really kind of old school Internet forums. Uh, there aren't really any algorithms there. Uh, and they attract a certain kind of, a certain kind of uh, person a lot of times. Uh, people who are like outcasts or have fringe ideas or beliefs, sometimes they're really extreme beliefs, um, you know, like white supremacy, things like that. So you do get this, this sort of hodgepodge. There's also a lot of people there who are really into anime. 
Uh, it's similar if you've been to Reddit. It's kind of like that, but less mainstream. Um, <laughs> and there's lots of different forums that exist there uh, for any and anyone on 8chan could, could at the time create a forum devoted to a given topic. So uh, essentially what happened was someone created a forum that was or a board uh, that was just devoted to uh, Q. Uh, so this actually started on 4chan. Uh, the folks on 4chan uh, were calling Q a LARP or a live action role play, making a lot of fun of Q. Eventually, the people who moderate uh, the, the board that Q was posting on 4chan were like, we've had enough. Uh, Q moves over to 8chan, which becomes Q's uh, home uh, for uh, basically in perpetuity until 8, 8chan had uh, some internal struggles and changed its name to 8kun. I was amazed at just the access you were able to pull off inside of this really tiny world. I mean, I, you know, you have interviews with basically every main player that was behind, you know, 8chan in particular. Um, and considering what it seems like, you know, they're, they're uh, absolutists when it comes to free speech. There's all sorts of crazy stuff on their board. I mean, how on earth did, were you able to get access to these people? Well, I have a background in digital rights. I made a film called Terms and Conditions May Apply back in 2013 that was focused on digital privacy. Um, so in 2018, when I saw that Reddit had banned QAnon, my ears perked up and I wondered, well, gosh, might this be where the internet is heading? Um, might this be sort of at the the front of this, this debate that I thought would be merging around what speech should be allowed online? Um, and Q was testing the limits of free speech on a site which was testing the limits of free speech. <laughs> yeah. So I, I reached out to them for that reason because I thought, well, gosh, this, this is an interesting way into talking about this bigger um, thematic question. But then, of course, the mystery of who Q actually was was what really drew me into the story. Now, let's talk about a few of the sort of characters in, 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 your, in your documentary. Um, the guy who started 8chan is a really fascinating guy. And I spent most of the time watching it, trying to figure out if I thought he was a good guy or a bad guy. And I, I, I honestly am really torn by it. He, he, see, he seems at times to be a really good character and at other times you just don't like him at all. It, it, tell us a little bit about him. Fred has brittle bone disease. Uh, he started 8chan when he was 19 years old. He started going on the chans when he was rather young. And the chans have some of the edgiest content that the internet has to offer. Um, so his worldview was largely shaped by troll culture uh, to some extent. And I think that that uh, manifests in reality. And, um, you know, it, it, first off, they draw a certain personality, but it's a big give and take. And so I think your read on Fred is right. I don't really see people in black and white terms. Um, and I was trying to uh, give a fair representation of, uh, you know, the, the terrible things that he does and, um, you know, maybe the good things that he does or just just well, who is he? What does he do? What is his involvement in all of this? Um, and I think that 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 read is right. It's it's uh, he, you know, he's a messy, complicated person. Um, who is struggling with a lot of issues, and uh, those issues come up. And like a lot of us, I think Fred's somebody who has difficulty escaping um, escaping these kind of uh, like cycles of self destruction. Hmm. And you see some of that in the in the series. Yeah, I, I, um, I, one of the things that you you kind of walk into is is this sort of debate that I found myself having watching the movie, which was like this this free speech absolutism 
which is, I, I mean, I would, I've called myself a free speech absolutist, and I'm, I, I'm pretty proud about that. But you show the absolute worst possible examples and how dark this can go. And you see, it's interesting to see the transition of Fred, who goes from a guy who started a site like this because he was 100% free speech absolutist and has this real change throughout his life. Um, was that a theme that you thought was, was, in, was an important part of this debate? I mean, I thought that the free speech theme was central to, to this debate. Uh, you know, I'm showing his perspective um, and I'm showing the, the counter perspective to that as well. Uh, you know, we see uh, the Watkinses who currently own and operate the site. Uh, they, you know, they go in front of Congress having to, to testify after multiple manifestos get posted to HN. So, you know, it really is sort of testing. And it usually is the, 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 the speech that we, fought, we struggle the most with that tests whether or not we actually have the right. Mm. Um, uh, let me let me ask you because I'm, I'm going to try to ask you some specific questions, but I don't want to give it away for everybody. So if you haven't seen it, you have to watch that. Sure. You have to watch it. But I'll, let me try as, as, as best. We can pause. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's this the transition you mentioned from 4chan to 8chan. Q starts on 4chan and moves to 8chan. They're two different sites completely. It's a really important part, I felt, of like the evidence as to what who Q might be. Um, but. Why did that happen? Why did why did Q leave 4chan? And, you know, you kind of touch on this as well, that there's a there's a difference when Q goes to 8chan. There's a difference in the writing style and all of that. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we see a style change happen sometime after Q moves from from 4chan to, to 8chan. Um, and initially, Q moves to a board on 8chan that is owned by a guy who's in episode one of Q Into the Storm. Uh, his name is Paul Ferber. Uh, and uh, so Q's on his board for a little while. There's some shakeups that go on behind the scenes. We see that there's a big style change. Uh, there's uh, you know this power struggle. And then suddenly, uh, Q is no longer on Paul Ferber's board. He's moved over to another board. But there he's claiming no outside calm. And no outside calm simply means I'm not leaving the platform. So from that moment on, Q really hitched its star to 8chan. And you have to ask yourself why. Well, of course, Q was growing in popularity. It was bringing a lot of attention to 8chan. Um, and there are other reasons to believe that uh, an individual like Paul Ferber was becoming uh, sort of a threat to the operation. Sort of behind the scenes, there was a lot of internal drama. Uh, and Ron Watkins, who owns and operates 8chan, uh, you know, he had a vested interest in, in in bringing Q to the site and keeping Q on the site, which is something that Fred helps bolster. But also we spend a ton of time with Ron in the series as we're doing a kind of cat and mouse with him to figure out exactly what his level of involvement in Q is. Yeah, the Watkins families. There's some odd birds uh, over there, I will say, <laughs> watching That's it. certainly <laughs> the case. Uh, yeah. um, so obviously without going into detail on who you might think it is, Going through this process, how sure are you of who it is? Do you know who it is in your mind? I mean, you make some indications in the in the in the, in the documentary, but like zero to one hundred percent. How sure are you, Colin Hobeck? <laughs> well, if you if you uh, you know the series kind of builds this case, and I think that the audience gets to play the part of investigator. I am personally one hundred percent convinced of the conclusion that we come to at the mm. end of the series. In so much as that individual is a linchpin in the operation, I'm not saying that that individual is the only one who is behind QAnon, but that they were uh, 
vital to uh, both keeping the drops going and uh, keeping Q, Q, Q going in general. Um, and and uh, would would have been would have been helming it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there uh, you see some of the other networks that are overlapping to make Q a possibility. But when it comes to who actually was writing the drops and who was curating the content and who would have had the skills and motive and all of that, uh, I think I think we paint a pretty clear case. the audience at the end. So I have my beliefs, but an audience member might take away something different. And that's really all I'm trying to do in the series is just present information, show people, um, you know, how these characters think, who the characters were, who were operating behind the scenes, um, you know, present the evidence and then let the audience come to their own conclusions. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been known to take in a true crime documentary here and there, and you you expertly walk me down these roads where I'm 100% sure it's one person and then just pull the rug out from under me. And it was it was a lot of fun to go through that process. I um, felt that way to me as well. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> the, there's a point in the series where you, uh, you kind of get involved in it. Like you actually go and try to save someone's life um, at great risk to yourself. Uh, I mean, how, why did you, why did you do that? And, and also was there a part of you that was like, I, I can't get involved in this way. Did, that, did you struggle at all as a, as a filmmaker, as a, as a journalist? In that moment, I, I did have to call up someone who is uh you know, who, who, who teaches journalism and has been, you know, sort of an old guard in journalism for decades, uh, just to ask about uh, whether or not it was appropriate for me to, to fly to the Philippines to help um, to help this individual in that moment. Um, and, uh, you know, they there's kind of a principle of minimizing harm. Um, and this individual was being would potentially have died for in, in prison for something that they said, uh, for a cyber libel charge, which mm. while that doesn't have any bearing in the United States, does have bearing in the Philippines. And that's something that I fundamentally disagree with. Um, so I felt I had a moral obligation to act in that situation and there was no one else who could. And I had an obligation to document um, document the character as they were go- trying, to, trying to flee the country in order to escape a charge that at its heart um, was, was about you know, the theme of the series, free speech. And that individual, I think, really came around to the virtues of free speech in that moment. Um, so it was a, it was a big uh, philosophical shift for the character as well. Hmm. All right, uh, last one before I let you go, because uh, I could ask you and pester you with questions all day about this, because it's fascinating. <laughs> um, this, this wasn't, this started in 2018 for you. This was several years of your life. And as I was watching it, you spent several years of your life in a really dark place with dark content and, you know, really kind of shady corners of the Internet. How how does this how did this affect you personally? Was it difficult to go through all of this over a three year period? Well, HN does describe itself as the quote unquote darkest corners or darkest reaches of the Internet. Mm. Uh it's a bit of it's a bit marketing at the same time it is trying to be sort of the edgiest place that's out there and the people who run the site very much embody the site that they run um but i would say that uh, for me uh, spending time with them was not really the greatest challenge i mean there were there were moments that you know you're you're trying to figure out um 
you know, who is uh, just how dangerous someone might be, just how involved they might be with the overall network. Um, and of course, there's some risk to that. But honestly, it was the economic toll more than anything else, because I, I produced this thing entirely independently. Uh, it, HBO didn't come on until September of 2020. Wow. Uh, so... A lot of this was just me, you know, getting cheap flights and, uh, yeah, trying to, uh, through hooking credit cards, whatever, keep the production and the investigation going. Um, so in some ways that was actually more taxing than, uh, I guess, uh, delving in, in these waters, but it's impossible not to spend a lot of time somewhere and not have it, uh, you know, melt your mind a little. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it really was an amazing thing. And, and you, I mean, you could tell how much work you put into it. And I'll say to the audience, you know, there's obviously a lot of conservatives who listen here and you might see Q and think immediately, OK, this is just some Trump uh, hit piece. It's really not like that at all. It's a fascinating story about just some crazy, fascinating people. Uh, and it was really an amazing journey. Uh, it's called Q Into the Storm. It is in, uh, streaming now entirely through HBO. If you have a subscription there, you can check it out. Make sure you do. Uh, Colin, man, thanks so much, and thanks for all your hard work on this. It really is a fascinating piece. Well, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, no problem, and uh, please say hello to your cat as well, uh, who is uh, made an appearance. I know, yeah, she just came in. <laughs> this is the, uh, the nature of... Uh... This nature of filming at home, huh? This is 2021, man. I, I appreciate it. All right, have a good one. All right, back in a second. Hop in. Okay, everyone, we are halfway done doing America tonight. We'll be doing America tomorrow, too, of course, but tonight the doing is almost done. Just buckle up and enjoy the back half of the program and follow me on Instagram over at my Stu Does America page. You'll get exclusive content and the link in the bio takes you to all the platforms you can stream this stupid show on or become a true member of the team with your own subscription to Blaze TV. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Let's do a little uh, Gavin Newsom, shall we? Gavin Newsom. We've talked about the recall quite a bit. Uh, the effort in California to recall Gavin Newsom needed millions of uh, signatures and they needed to be collected during a pandemic. Not an easy chore. We've talked to the people at the, who have been running that effort multiple times on the show. And while I, uh, I was hopeful, I was not exactly convinced this was going to happen, uh, particularly at the beginning. Over time, I became pretty convinced that they were going to get the signatures, and they did. They got the signatures. This is now uh, official, uh, propelled by growing frustration over California's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. A Republican-led drive to remove Gavin Newsom from office collected enough voter signatures to qualify for the ballot, state officials reported Monday, triggering for only the second time in state history a rapid-fire campaign to decide whether to oust a sitting governor. Uh, they submitted way more than the 1.495 million verified voter signatures. Uh, that's equal to 12% of all ballots uh, cast in the previous election. Uh, now, I will say uh, kind of the same way. I'm now, of course, we have it confirmed that there will be a recall election. I'm not as optimistic they're going to be able to get him out of office. It's going to be hard. I mean, his, his approval rating, look, it's California. It's a very left-wing state. Uh, Gavin Newsom is going to be the guy, you know, he's going to have, he still has like a well over 50% approval rating, something like 55, 56% approval rating. It doesn't necessarily mean that's going to hold up through this election. And a lot of this 
of course, depends on who else runs. We know Caitlyn Jenner's running, um, but we don't know a lot of the characters who will kind of make this race up. We will be watching it closely as California tries to ask the question, do they really want anyone else for governor? You can get your mug at stewdoesmerch.com. Uh, By the way, also speaking of terrible governors, Andrew Cuomo has been speaking yet again. Uh, had a little uh, Q&A uh, today. Jesse McKinley uh, had some reporting on that from the New York Times. Uh, he said Cuomo promptly made news, flatly denying he had ever sexually harassed anyone or had done, quote, anything wrong, end quote. A subtle shift from previous remarks where he acknowledged making statements that might have made employees uncomfortable or have been perceived as unwanted flirtation. So now he's exonerated himself from that particular charge. He admitted it last time. Now he's been exonerated by a Cuomo investigation. The report uh, didn't say anything different. Uh, He didn't do anything wrong, he said. Um, And he believes he's going to be exonerated by the report from his attorney general as well. Mr. Cuomo's advisors have accused Ms. James that's the uh, AG, uh, a fellow Democrat, of political self-interest, saying that she wants to run for governor herself and have argued that any employees that worked on the book did so as volunteers. This is another one of these brewing scandals where Cuomo uh, had some workers who worked for the state. They just happened to be volunteering for the book. That's a totally normal thing. Um, They asked uh, him if he had any documentation Uh, Cuomo said his administration did not have any documentation showing his employees opted in to do the the volunteer work. I didn't have them sign a volunteer form, if that's what you're asking. The question is, did they volunteer? And I'm saying, yes, they volunteered. I mean, they definitely volunteered in the way that they didn't get paid for it. Uh, It does not seem like he actually paid them for it. He just had them do it as part of their normal jobs, which is another totally separate scandal from when he's just molesting them while they're at work. Uh, or when he's killing a bunch of old people all around the state. Three different scandals now. And it is one of those situations where, while scandal one, the nursing home, scandal scandal two, the uh, sexual uh, harassment, are much bigger scandals and much more important in the grand scheme of things. But scandal three has a little bit of that feel of like Al Capone tax evasion. Like, you're not supposed to be having people work on your book for free. It's a well-known thing. He did it anyway because he thinks he can get away with anything. We'll see if that's true. We basically have an entire fridge filled with built bars at our house. My wife likes to refrigerate them, so they're a little chilled when she eats them. You don't have to do that. You can bring them to work. You can do it a bunch of different ways. What is a built Bar? Well, a built Bar is basically the ultimate protein bar. And that is an undersell of it because protein bars aren't that great. So you're getting the best protein bar. Well, is it even good? Yes. Built Bar starts with taste first. They want to make sure you like the taste. You love the taste. And then they make sure it's high in protein and fiber, low in calories and carbs. You know, it's like three to five net carbs. So if you're on keto or South Beach or Atkins or whatever those diets are, uh, you can do pretty well with it there. Uh, Built Bar comes uh, in a variety of flavors. Uh, they're inc- we need to get a list of the flavors because uh, we have cookies and cream, caramel brownie, raspberry. I know my wife loves the coconut brownie chunk 
thing. I think there's one. I mean, they're amazing flavors. You're going to love them. They even have marshmallow ones that are like kind of like Charleston Chew vibe. I mean, just they taste like candy bars. That's why people love them so much. Built Bar is the answer. Go to BuiltBar.com. Use the promo code STU15 to save 15% off your next order. STU15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. The code is STU15. A guy named uh, Seth Andrew, he was the, um, uh, the senior advisor in the Office of Educational Technology at the White House he, until 2016 in the Obama administration. Uh, he has, uh, well, he's admitted some wrongdoing. Mm. <sighs> Sad. He stole, uh, stole over $200,000 from, uh, from a network of uh, charter schools that he started after he left the White House. In court papers, authorities said Andrew tried to make it appear that the money he took from the schools came from a civic organization he controls. They said he used, listen, I mean, you want to talk about dumb criminals. Let, let me, how dumb is this? You're getting this much trouble over this. He used the money to qualify for a half percent interest rate reduction on his home. Now, the home was worth $1.776 million, and he got the interest rate from 3% down to 2.5%. He stole $200,000 for that dumb purpose. Unbelievable. Um, And speaking of stealing your money, uh, Biden is going to seek $80 billion to beef up IRS audits of high earners. Now, you might not be a high earner. You may be a low earner. You may be a nothing earner. Also, you might be a conservative which is a totally different category of people. But what I'm saying here is that if, why do we need 80, I mean, it just, it's hard to even comprehend. They want to get more money, so they need $80 billion to get more money from the high earners. Like, I don't know, maybe just don't spend the $80 billion. <laughs> maybe spend, how about this, $100,000 to try to help people get audited. I don't know. It just seems like a complete scam, as all these things are. It's like, Stealing $200,000 to get your interest rate down by a half a percent. It's the sort of logic. They, they sort of work together, I think. Back in a second. Thank you for making it uh, to the end of the show. Uh, you're one of the cool kids. Welcome to the Cool Kids Club. We appreciate you hanging out. Make sure to go to my Instagram page and follow along. Uh, click on the link in bio for all sorts of special surprises. Uh, check it out there. Um, by the way, Andrew Cuomo is awful. Dot com. Can't tell you how many people say they say a, they say the dot com part along with me. And if you're one of those people, don't worry. You're slightly less strange than you think you are because other people do it, too. And that's what brings us together. Our strangeness. Um, before we go, I want to tell you about Gurbangali Berdi Mocha Madoff. OK, he, of course, is the president a supreme leader, I would say, of Turkmenistan, the country you probably had never heard of unless you watch this show a lot. Turkmenistan celebrated its first national holiday in honor of its native dog breed on Sunday. This is with its, uh, of course, uh, Berde Mukamadov. Think about that every single time I say it. Uh, he, was, uh, he was awarding a best in show prize uh, in, at a ceremony in the capital, Ashgabat. The large stocky breed is known as a wolf crusher. That's the name of the they called the dog a wolf crusher, which is a pretty solid name. I got to say, kind of deserves a holiday. If you're a wolf crusher as a dog, that's pretty cool. Um, uh, you, of course, uh, it's called, you get the nickname wolf crusher when you guard sheep and goats. 
and also guard some homes. Uh, the golden statue was uh, unveiled last November. And of course, Ashgabat is filled with gold statues, most of them of Berdy Mukhamedov or Turkmenbashi, the guy before him. Um, uh, you've heard me talk about Turkmenistan before, but never about their puppies. They're prized, pampered, and perfect little puppies. Sure, people are dying off in mass, but puppies! Puppies! Look at the puppies!